All right. Well, hey, welcome to Sojourn Church. Uh, my name is Justin. I'm the lead pastor here, and we are grateful to gather together here at Frost Middle School for the first time, as Alan said. If this is your first time being with Sojourn, uh, this is our first time being in this particular location, and uh, we're just thankful for it that God blessed us with it uh, as we continue to uh, seek to be the local church here in Fairfax, uh, to be able to have some space to welcome new people this morning and throughout the coming weeks and months. We want Sojourn to be a place that you can get plugged into and connected no matter where you are uh, in your relationship with Jesus. We want you to be able to learn more about what it means to know Christ and and to follow after him. And so we're grateful that we can do that here. And I just want to say as we get started this morning, a thank you to uh, so many people that have served this morning. Uh, We had a lot of people come out uh, and serve to help uh, put this together. Uh, Every week we have to come in and set up chairs and all everything that's going on here. And we had a group of people that came extra early today. So thank you guys for serving your church family this morning. Uh, if you need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand and somebody will bring a Bible around to you. Uh, we're actually going to be in uh, the scriptures looking at a lot of different scriptures this morning as we kick off this new series in the book of Genesis. And so uh, we want to be able for you to be able to read along with us to be able to look at that as we go through it this morning. If you don't actually own a copy of the scriptures, we'd love to give that to you as a gift uh, so that you can read along throughout the week. We believe God's word is good for us as it's his word to us. And so... If you don't own the scriptures or have a copy of it, we want you to be able to take that home. Uh, Last week, Alan kicked off a sermon series uh, and talked about the fact that we're going to be in this sermon series for quite a while, probably through the rest of the year, uh, with a few breaks here and there uh, for us to be able to go through the first five books of the scriptures. And that's what's called the Torah uh, or the Pentateuch. And so we're going to spend the better part of the year going through these first five books of the Bible. And so uh, he preached out of the New Testament last week, uh, but we are starting in the very beginning uh, this week in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 this morning. And as I was studying it this week, uh, it made me think about something. As I was reading through chapters 1 and 2 this, this past week, studying for the sermon, it made me think about something. It made me think about a gigantic buffet. Now, I'm not talking like Golden Corral style or Old Country Buffet. Not that. I'm talking like a good buffet that's just full of food and everything out there in the buffet is stuff that you actually want to eat. You're not curious about what is in it. You say, man, I want to eat this food. It all looks so good. It's fresh. It's tasty. But as you stand there and look at this buffet, you may think, well, hey, I want to eat all this, but you soon find out that you can't actually eat all of it. Your stomach won't allow that to take place. There's so much good stuff, but no way to eat all of it. So you have to be selective, picking and choosing strategically what you're going to eat and what you're not going to eat. Well, that's kind of what we're doing with this series. There is so much good stuff in the first five books of the Bible. So many things that we could focus on. So many things that we could hit on. But we are going to be intentionally selective as we go through these first five books. Hitting on some things and not other things. And that's not to avoid troublesome texts or anything like that. There's a reason for that. And that brings us to that question. What is the purpose of this series? What is the goal of this sermon series? The reason that we wanted to preach through the Torah in this kind of high level way is because we want to be reminded or taught maybe for the first time about who God is and about what God has been doing since the beginning. And that is pursuing his people. As Alan said last week, this is all about Jesus And so our hope is, as we walk through these first five books of the scriptures, that we will be more enamored with God. 
We'll be more enamored by his amazing grace given to us as we walk through various parts and portions of the Torah. This series is about telling a story. It's a hard story, but it's a good story. A story that will challenge us at points, will encourage us, will be perplexing at times and humble us along the way. Man, I'm excited to jump into it. So as we begin to open up to the first verse of the Bible and the first chapter of the scriptures, let's just pray and ask God to not only bless our time today in his word, but throughout these next few months. Father, we give you thanks that we can gather in this new place. We thank you for your provision of this school, that we live in an area right now that is friendly towards churches meeting in their buildings. And so, Lord, we don't want that to be lost on us. We give you thanks for that. But Lord, as we open up the scriptures this morning, I pray that as we look at these first few verses, these first few chapters of your holy scripture given to us, your word given to us, Lord, that we would be drawn into a deeper place of worship before you, God. Help us to see you in the scriptures. Help us not to do what Alan talked about last week, that the Pharisees did, that they studied and knew the word, but they missed Jesus in it. Lord, we pray that you'd help us to see what we need to see, what you've called us to see, the reason you've given this as a gift to us. And Lord, that through that, not only today, but every day that we walk through this, through the rest of the year, Lord, that you would bring about transformation and change in our hearts and our lives as individuals and as a church family. So Lord, we thank you for your scriptures. We thank you for your spirit that helps us to understand them. And we pray for the spirit to do that this morning and that you'd be glorified in our time today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll go ahead and, and open up your Bible to Genesis chapter 1. And we are going to read just verses 1 and 2 to start our time together in the Word. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, says this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was, out without, with, was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Today we are going to go through chapters 1 and 2, but like I said, there is no way in our time together this morning that we can possibly hit on every aspect of what is in these few verses in chapter 1 and 2. In fact, I think you could probably preach six or seven sermons just from these first two chapters in the book of Genesis, but we're going to preach one. And so as we get started, I just want to remind you of something, or maybe you don't know this, but we post a blog on our website every week about the scriptures that we're going to preach. We put some of the songs that we're going to sing, and we also list out, hey, this is the text of scripture that the sermon is going to be based off of. And so I just want to encourage you and remind you about that so that you can take time as we walk through this series to be reading the scriptures that we're going to be preaching through. This morning, we're going to be preaching through two whole chapters, but we're not going to be able to hit on every verse. But I'd love for you to be able to read all of those verses as we walk through them. So this morning, we're going to zero in on a few aspects to paint a big picture of what's going on and look at why Genesis 1 and 2 matters for you and it matters for me right here and now. See, what we need to understand as we start is that from the beginning, that the start of this is that Moses, the author of Genesis, has a goal in mind as he writes this. There's a purpose for writing this story to God's people. This is not just a cold reporting of lifeless facts. See, I think something we have to acknowledge as we read Genesis 
is that we have a desire within us that I think is affected and impacted by the fact that we live in a post-enlightenment time. We live in a time where we love and want to figure everything out. And if we can't figure something out, if we can't explain something, then what we do is we explain it away. We reject it as not being true. We think history should always be. We think history is always written and reported without a purpose or a stated goal. But see, the Bible is not primarily a history book, though it contains history in it. It's not primarily a book of commands to follow, though it contains commands in it. It's not a science book meant to explain things scientifically, though it contains descriptions and relevant information for science in it. It is a story, and it's a big story, a God-sized story that has cosmic and personal ramifications and implications for all of us. And that is the point of Genesis chapter 1 and 2, to begin telling the story As we get into this, we also need to understand who Genesis and the Torah are written for and to. It's written to God's covenant community. It's written to his people. What this means is that its purpose is to be factual. It is to be true in everything that it says, but in a relational sense. It's like me sitting down with my boys as they get older and telling them about how I met Amy, how I met my wife, how she became my wife and now is their mother. It's it's about that. It's like me sitting down and talking to them. But when I do that, I don't do it with some scientific description. It's not some cold, purposeless, lifeless history that I seek to tell them. It's a true story, but it's a relational story. And it's relational in its content, but it's also relational in its audience. As I tell about my relationship with my wife, I'm also telling it to my kids who I'm in a relationship with. It's a relational story to be told. And it begins with these words. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is a story about God, about who he is and what he's done. This is his story And so we have to understand that when we approach the scriptures, that they're about God, not about us. As we read these first few words of Genesis chapter 1, that should set the framework for everything we look at at the scriptures and realize this is about God, not primarily about you as we often seek to make it. God is creator. He is father. He is good. He is sovereign. He is gracious. He is powerful. He is the beginning and the end. He is Lord. He is God. And the amazing truth is that you and I can know him. See, the story told in Genesis is not validated by, it's validated by a lot of different things, but most importantly, it's validated by the Holy Spirit working within God's people. And as this story about God unfolds, we also learn that it's a story that addresses our worldview and our worship. It it addresses how we understand the world that we live in. It It addresses what we ascribe value and worth to, where our heart and our affections are, where the glory that we have, that we give, where greatness is given. It addresses all of those things. And it begins with these words, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. When Moses writes these words in the beginning, it's the beginning to a story. But as one commentator says, it's a phrase that is pregnant with the end. God has existed eternally. But here we see there's a start to something. And when we read these words in the beginning, God, we should anticipate 
something happening, about to happen. The author tells us God created the heavens and the earth. God created everything that exists. There is nothing that exists that God did not first create. The world and the universe that was not, that did not exist, comes into existence. And verse 2 says it's without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. But there's more anticipation. It says the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. You can almost sense the quietness that's about to be broken by action. There's a palpable feeling that something big is about to happen as the spirit hovers over the deep. So what happens? God speaks. And God said, let there be light. And there was light and God saw that the light was good and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night and there was evening and there was morning the first day. Light comes into darkness and it comes by the word of God. And here's a crazy thing to think about. In the order that Genesis chapter 1 is written, we see light come into existence before the sun is even created in verse 14. Now, I think it's important to step back and realize that Moses is not sitting there necessarily writing a chronological order of what God is doing. He wasn't an eyewitness to this happening. It wasn't like he was sitting there saying, God, hold on, slow down a little bit. I got to write all this down. That's not the main purpose and point of why he is writing this. The point of all of what he is writing is that he is trying to tell us God created everything out of nothing. But I think it is important to see that that when light comes, that it comes first as God creates. Because the light of the glory of God has existed before the sun and will exist long after the sun disappears. Revelation 21, 23 says, And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb. Light being created by the word of God shows us that light always triumphs over darkness. Now, darkness is not abolished in this account of creation here, but it is subordinated. But it might just give us a little bit of a hint of what, of what is to come. That darkness will seek to overcome, but we know that it never can overcome. It never will overcome because in the beginning, God What I want us to see as we look at Genesis chapter 1 is that Moses is doing something as he's writing. He is being intentional in how he is writing. And ten times Moses repeats the phrase, and God said, and God said, and God said. And after every time that he does that, God brings into existence something that did not exist yet. And he does it by the power of his voice. Until God speaks, nothing exists. Until he speaks, nothing exists. God creates everything out of nothing. He's not subject to natural laws like the first law of thermodynamics or the law of the conservation of mass and matter. Those things are dependent on him. This is what we sometimes call creation ex nihilo, which is Latin for out of nothing. God created everything out of nothing. The author of Hebrews in chapter 11 verse 3 says, by faith. We understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. And then we say, why does it matter if God created everything out of nothing? Why is that so important to realize and believe? What's the big deal? What it means is, is that God is the king over all. He's the king over creation. He rules over creation because he created all of it. 
There's nothing that existed prior to God bringing it into existence. And what we see in this account of creation is that God brings order. God brings structure to the world that he creates. There are days and nights, boundaries, reproduction, vegetation, sun, moon, water, mountains, animals. And then we get to verse 26. Verse 26, it says, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. The pinnacle of God's creation is the creation of humanity. See, we have to recognize that human beings have similarities to these animals that God has created. They're created in a very similar way by the word of God's mouth. They are placed in the same environment. They eat, they breathe, they reproduce. But there is a fundamental and clear difference. Humanity is created in the image of of God. God is king over all of creation. And when he creates image bearers, he creates representatives of his kingship, representatives of his kingdom who are given a task by the king. They're called to multiply, to rule over creation as the king would have them rule over creation and all for his glory and for his praise. What we need to see in this is that human beings, male and female, are given value in God's creation because they are created in his image. That's why they, are, they have this value in, in more so than anything else is because they bear the image of God. He gives them dominion over his place, but always under his rule. This is not some autonomous dominion that God gives to mankind And we're going to come back to the creation of humanity because the author of Genesis comes back to it. But in this end section of Genesis, these last few verses, as Moses begins to tell the story of God, we see two things. We see a declaration. In verse 31, it says, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Everything that God made was very good, but it gets its goodness not just from its inherent value. It gets its goodness because God created it, and God is good. And then a concluding statement is made. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. Listen, God does not rest because he's tired. God does not rest because he's weary, because it's been a hard week of work. He rests because his dwelling place has been established. And all who live under his rule live in the rest of the king. The shalom of God has come to be in his creation. The peace of God has come to rule and reign in his creation. And this rest of God continues on. See, as the story unfolds, the picture of God that we get in Genesis chapter 1 is that God is transcendent and God is powerful. God is transcendent. He's exalted. He is lifted up. He is otherworldly. Who else can speak everything into existence but God? And so this is the picture that Moses paints of God in 
chapter 1 of Genesis. As one commentator puts it, with his powerful word, the king of the universe created the earth as his good kingdom. See, what, what I'm not going to talk about as we look at Genesis chapter 1 and 2 is how old the earth is. Because that's not the point of Genesis 1 and 2. I'm not going to talk about whether a day literally means a day or not, because that's not the point of Genesis 1 and 2. And those may be good questions to ask, but it's not the intention of the author to answer them. His intention and point is to establish the fact that God is creator and Lord over all. But then we get this additional perspective of creation. And I think for a certain reason, because it gives us an additional picture of who God is. It's a zoom in to the creation of God's image bearers. And we learn that God is not only transcendent and powerful, but we also see that God is imminent and gracious. He is imminent. He is close and personal and he is gracious. Chapter 2, verse 5. Moses writes this, when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Then out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We've seen this picture of the transcendent nature of God. That God is powerful who speaks creation into existence in chapter 1. But here we see that God is personal. Verse 7 in your Bible, in your English translation of the Bible says, Lord God, in this section of chapter 2. And Lord is all capitalized here. But in Hebrew, what that says is Yahweh God. He's not a God who is distant and disconnected. He is personal and he has a name, Yahweh. And then it says, and then Yahweh breathes life into Adam, into this man. It's an amazing picture of God's imminence. He breathes the breath of life into Adam's nostrils. Do you see how the closeness is pictured there that God himself would do this as he seeks to create man? He breathes life into Adam, physical, mental, and spiritual. And in this moment, he is united with Yahweh. It's like a father or mother holding his or her child for the first time. Hearing their cries, touching their little bodies, there's a closeness, a connection between father and child, mother and child. And we see that same picture here as Yahweh breathes life into his image bearer. See, Yahweh does not remain distant. He is intimately involved in the life of his image bearers. But we also see in the midst of this that Yahweh gives direction to Adam. He calls him to work the land, to enjoy the land that God has created. But he also tells him not to do something. He says, I don't want you to eat of this one tree. There's a call to obedience, to follow me, to trust me as your king, as the king of all creation. Would you believe me? Would you trust me? And know that everything that I give to you, everything I ask you to do is for your good and for my glory. In the midst of this, Yahweh also creates a co-image bearer of Adam to work with Adam, to complement Adam, and to fully represent the image of God with him. 
He forms a woman from Adam and they are joined together in the first picture of marriage that is holy and pure and together they are an image of the full image of God. And it says they were naked and not ashamed. Genesis 1 and 2 is a story of grace. God could have created all things and remained distant and detached, but he created all things, including these relational beings, in order to give himself in relationship to them. That's a picture of grace. We don't deserve that kind of relationship with God. God had perfect community in the Trinity between Father, Son, and Spirit. He didn't need to create the world and people, but he did so because of grace. The abundance of joy within himself, he desired to give that away. And he did that in the physical world, in the spiritual world, and in humanity, namely by giving himself. God is good. He is generous. He creates a world to be enjoyed by his image bearers and all to the praise of his glory. See, God is transcendent and powerful, and God is also imminent and gracious. This is the picture of God that's put on display in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. This is his story. These truths about God, though, they do drastically affect our worldview and our worship. As we read Genesis chapter 1 and 2, we have to see that it affects our worldview because it has everything to do with the world and who is king over it. You and I live under the lordship of, the God, of God, the creator, by the sheer fact that he created us and he is creator. We are not autonomous beings. We are not self-sustaining. We are not self-sufficient or even self-governing. We bear his image and remain constantly under his lordship. Every moment of every day that you breathe is a blessing and a gift from a gracious God. He's in control of all things. This means then that the reality of who we are and everything that we do should be an act of worship to our God and King who created all things. No one else is worthy of worship but him. Psalm 96 verses 4 through 5 say, For great is Yahweh and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but Yahweh made the heavens. And now we, you and I, as image bearers of God, are given creation and given humanity to be stewards of. It's a gift of grace from God and a call and a command from God to never exploit either one of those things, his creation or other image bearers in any way, shape, or form, but instead to steward all of those things for the worship of God in all things. The fact that this is about God that this story is about his power and his might, who he is as covenant Lord. It should invoke worship within us in, in multiple parts of the reality of everyday life. As you go out and look up at the stars in the sky, as you look down at the intricacy of a flower or see a tiny ant carrying something that is so much bigger than its tiny, tiny frame, you should, should give praise to God. He created all of that, all the details of your life. All the details of his creation. God did that. That should invoke worship within us. When we see new life come about in the birth of a child, whether it's our own or a friend, and we've had many children born recently in this church, we should give praise and honor to God because of that. God brought that into existence. Even the creation itself gives worship to God. Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Look, we are not the center of the universe. God is. 
And God has always been, and he will always be, because he is the eternal Lord of all. But it should also invoke worship within us, because this same almighty, sovereign, and powerful God is knowable and dwells with his people. See, that's the point of these first chapters in this story. God is king, and when you and I live under his kingship, everything is good. When we seek to follow the calling that God has given to us and walk in obedience, everything is good. So Genesis 1 and 2 is not about geology. It's not about archaeology. It's about knowing God and being who God has called us to be as his image bearers. Then we say, that's great. That's, this is an amazing thing to think about, about who God is, that we can know him. But, but Alan said last week that the Old Testament is all about Jesus. So where's Jesus in all this? I mean, especially in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, there's no sin that has entered into the world yet. So there's no need for Jesus. So what, where do we see Christ in this? We see it in multiple ways. We could go back to places like verse 26 and see that when it says, let us make man in our image after our likeness, that Jesus is there. Now, while Moses would not have been able to understand the fullness of the Trinity at this point, the divine author of the scripture certainly did. When we look at verse 26 in light of all of scripture, we see Jesus present in the creation of humanity as image bearers of God. But we see it throughout all of Genesis chapter 1 and 2. As we look at the rest of scripture, it helps inform how we can understand this. In John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, it says this about Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, talking about Christ. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Hebrews chapter 1 says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He, meaning Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he, meaning Jesus, upholds the universe by the word of his power. Colossians chapter 1. He, meaning Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him, in Jesus, all things hold together. Jesus is the word of God in creation. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. That light that exists before the sun is even created. Jesus is the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus creates, Jesus sustains, and Jesus holds all things together. Jesus is all over Genesis chapter 1 and 2. But most importantly, most importantly, we see Jesus because of the reality that this story is not written in isolation. Moses didn't write Genesis chapter 1 and 2 as just a small paper to be introduced about the creation of the world, disconnected from what was going on. The end of chapter 2 indicates that there is more to come as this story unfolds. They are naked and unashamed, but that's about to change. We have to remember that Genesis 1 and 2 was written to God's people who had experienced the effects of sin and rebellion by rebelling against the lordship of God in their own life just as you and I do. See, 
Genesis 1 and 2 doesn't simply shape our worldview and worship. It confronts wrong worldviews and false worship. When we understand that Yahweh is king and Lord over all creation, including us, it immediately confronts any worship of a false god. And that's likely one of the reasons Moses wrote Genesis 1 and 2 is to confront false worship of false gods. But it also confronts any worship of the false god of self, which each of us struggle with. We want to be God. We want to be in charge. We want everything to revolve around us. But remember, in the beginning, God, not man. Genesis 1 and 2, though, also reminds us of the most critical truth and the source of all our hope and peace. And that is that God is transcendent and powerful and at the same time is imminent and gracious. And the good news for us, the relevance of Genesis 1 and 2 for us is that God is still the same. Because sin has entered the world, creation is broken. The image of God is marred, it's jacked up, it's stained, it's tainted, it's disfigured, but God is still the same. Let me go back to those same scriptures that I read before from the New Testament, John chapter 1, and read a little bit further. John writes this, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. And the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made in him. In Jesus was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Hebrews chapter 1, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he, Jesus, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Colossians chapter 1 He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And as we read earlier, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Look, Jesus is light that shines in the darkness of your life and my life. Jesus is life where there is lifelessness. Jesus is the image of God and he restores the image of God in us. Jesus is the very word of God. Jesus is the creator and sustainer of all things. Jesus brings and restores the shalom of God. Jesus brings order to chaos and has overcome the world. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. See, Jesus is a real picture and a real promise of the fact that God is still transcendent. As he calms the storms, heals the sick, 
and defeats sin and death. Jesus is a real picture and a real promise of the fact that God is still imminent. As he comes to us as one of us, weeps with the brokenhearted, spends time with the physically sick and spiritually dead, and brings life by the word of his mouth and the reality of his life, his death on the cross for sin that he did not commit in his resurrection. He is the exact imprint of the glory of God. He came to dwell among us. He reveals God to us. He reminds us that this is God's story, that this is God's creation, that God is still sovereign over all things, and that in the beginning there was always a plan for an ending. Revelation chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Then I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. God is still the same. The God who out of nothing called all of creation into existence still calls nothing, out of nothing, life into existence within you and within me. The God who by his word and power spoke light into darkness continues to speak light into the darkness of your life and my life. So my question this morning for you is, do you know him? Do you know this God? There's no other God worth knowing. There's no other God that exists except this one who created all things out of nothing. Do you know him? God will always be with his creation. God will always be with his people. So what do we do with this? What do we do with this picture of God that we see? And one of the things that we can do is we can worship. We can worship. We can bow down before God when we see this God high and lifted up and also realize that he has manifest his imminence most clearly and perfectly in sending his son to die on the cross for us and rescue us. We should worship him because of that. We can trust We can trust this God because he is the sovereign Lord over all things. We can trust and know that he is good and he has our good in mind. We can believe. We can believe that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We can hope that no matter what is going on in our life right now, that God has not abandoned us. God has not left us. He's not checked out of this world. He is bringing all things to a resolution. He is reconciling all things to himself. And he's the one who says, behold, I am making all things new. And we can rest. We can rest knowing that this world does not revolve around you. It doesn't revolve around me. It doesn't revolve around the politics of our age. It doesn't revolve around anything else. It revolves around God. And he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The word of God. Jesus created the world and the word of God, Jesus, will redeem this world. Our sovereign God made everything and controls everything and he will take care of his people, whatever may come. He is our hope. 
He is our peace. Do you know the sovereign creator? Do you really know him? Do you really worship him? Is your whole life oriented towards this God who makes himself knowable to you and to me? Do you know him? Genesis 1 and 2 is about God. Be encouraged that he is Lord and that he is with us and he's not going anywhere. As we come to the table this morning, we're going to be taking two elements for communion, both bread and drink. And God has given us these two elements of creation and called us to eat and called us to drink. To remind us of the king of creation who gave himself for us because of the richness of his grace and the magnificent nature of his love. As you eat this bread this morning and drink the cup and these things pass over your taste buds that God purposefully and intricately made. Be reminded in your heart, be refreshed spiritually in your soul that our God is the same. Just as he made the world new in the beginning, he will do so again in the end. The word of God became flesh and dwelt among us as one of us to rescue us. And Jesus did this by taking our sin and rebellion on himself, bearing the righteous wrath of God that we deserve so that we could be set free from that and see the image of God that's been so jacked up within us, restored from the beginning to the end. The Bible is all about Jesus. This is God's story and it's a story of grace. And so as you come, take the elements this morning, be reminded in that, be refreshed in that, allow it to be, to draw you into worshiping your God and King and if you're not a follower of Christ, we would just ask you not to come forward to take communion this morning because this is a declaration of worship to this God. It's a declaration of worship to the God that we see in Genesis chapter one and two and to Jesus who we see throughout all of scripture. And so if you don't know Christ yet, if you haven't repented of your sin, turned away from false worship and turned to God through Christ, believing that he died on the cross and was raised again for you, then we just want to ask you to stay, stay in your seat. Just hang out in your seat. We don't want you to come forward and take communion. We want you to take Christ. We, just want, to ex- we want you to experience his grace. And so just stay in your seat and pray. Ask God, the God of all creation, to reveal himself to you. That's why this church is here. So we want to help people know God and be in a relationship with him. And so if you don't know what that means or you want to learn more about that, please come talk to me or any of our other leaders. Go to a community group this week and share that with your community group leader. We want to journey with you in that. And those of you that will come forward, you can come forward when you're ready to receive the elements and tear off a small piece of bread and take a cup to drink. And what Jesus has done for you will be spoken over you. And you can take it immediately or when you get back to your seat. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And in the end, he declares, behold, I am making all things new. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we... We give you praise, we give you thanks, we give you worship this morning. Lord, it seems even trite to even, even just say those words, Lord, recognizing who you are and the fact that you have called everything that we see and the things we even don't see into existence by the power of your voice, by the power of your word. 
And so, Lord, there's a reverence that should come about because of that in our lives. Lord, that you, the God of all creation, would make yourself knowable to us, that you would be intimately involved in our lives, not only giving us physical life, but through Christ giving us spiritual life. So, Lord, as we come forward this morning and take communion and then continue to sing songs of praise to you and about you, I pray that you would just draw us into a deep place of worship and reverence before you, that as we lift our hands and bow our heads before you, God, that you would receive all glory, all honor, all praise here in this moment, but not just here in this moment, Lord. I pray that as we leave this place, that we would be in awe of who you are. Lord, that we would not be able to look at our everyday lives the same way, that the mundane activities of our lives would no longer be mundane as we look at a child that we stay home with or we go to a workplace and see our coworkers around us, that we would say, man, look at all these image bearers of God. And Lord, we would be broken for a world that's broken, that needs to be restored by you. And Lord, we thank you that the promise that you are going to come again to bring a new heavens and a new earth and to make all things new, that we can rest in that promise. But while we wait, Lord, I pray that we would take this message of awe, this awesome message of your grace and take it out to the world that others might know you, God, Yahweh, the King of all creation. Lord, I pray for your spirit to work in us. Don't let us leave here just hearing words pass over our ears. Let these things sink into the depths of our heart and affect every aspect of our life. May all of our life be worshiped to you. Lord, forgive us where we don't do that. And we rest on the grace of Christ given to us this morning. Thank you for your love, your unrelenting love for us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.